So as we continue with the retreat, at the end of the third full day, only, or maybe not only, um, I want to explore um, the role of training in the opening of the heart. Really, the practices that help us transform the heart. And we'll continue uh, tomorrow night very much with that theme with, with Sean. And we saw how, in many ways, we have uh, somewhat distinct emphases. We can focus on mindfulness, we can focus on wisdom, we can focus on the metta practice. Ultimately, I believe they get integrated, they are integrated, and we can um, see how in the training of mindfulness, the heart opens when I'm with something difficult in my own being. Um, there can be the heart opening in compassion. When I see clearly a pattern, my heart can open. And when we do loving-kindness practice, I can notice interesting tendencies, interesting patterns, as we were noticing a number of things uh, arising with the neutral person this afternoon. It's mindfulness, really, that notices those tendencies. And so tonight I want to focus particularly on metta practice, on the loving-kindness practice. I want to point to what metta is and how it works. How does metta work? Why does it work? And we've seen how, in a way, metta is this continual intention to open the heart. Um, you know, my uh, mentor in metta, Sylvia Borstein, says that metta practice is something like each moment asking, where is my heart right now? It's effectively something like that. Where is it right now? And it's the continual intention to invite kindness to the situation for myself, for others. In the teachings that we've received from the Buddhist tradition, loving-kindness practice occurs in a particular framework. It occurs in the framework called the Brahma-vihara, or the divine abodes that I explained a few days ago in, in beginning metta practice, that metta is grouped with compassion, joy, and equanimity. And they're grouped together, we might say, as constituting the four stations of the heart. And really, in a way, understood as the heart in response to different circumstances and different, different presenting experiences. The heart in its open state, maybe without anything particularly occurring, that's either very challenging or very, very positive, is just a basic kindness. 
that we present to the world. You know, there's a Tibetan teacher, Kala Rinpoche, who some years ago was at the Boston Aquarium. I, I used to live right around the, from the Boston Aquarium, and it's this beautiful tank. Anyone been to the Boston Aquarium? Yeah. So it's you know, got this circular tank, and all the fish kind of swim around. The sharks are in there, and they kind of seem to get along with the other fish. You know, maybe they've been trained well. Maybe the sharks have had some metta training. I don't know. And um, this Tibetan teacher, Kala Rinpoche, went to the aquarium, and he was in the, you know, the, big, the big central swim around. And he started tapping on it. He was continually tapping on the aquarium. And people asked him, what are you doing? And he says, I want to get their attention so I can send them metta. And this was his default relationship to the world. How would that be? <laughs> if we don't have anything else in our mind other than just to bring kindness to our, to our lives. That's really the spirit of metta. And in that very open stance, that's the metta practice. When that kind of open wish for kindness encounters suffering or difficulty, it becomes compassion. It's not that compassion is a different state of the heart than metta. It's really more the heart in another way of being, kind of the same heart. It's not hugely different. I think we know that from our metta practice, that the, that the kind, open heart can just encounter some experience and have a little different flavor of compassion. And the same thing with joy. When that open heart encounters something beautiful or some happiness, my own or others, it becomes what's called sympathetic joy. It's a kind of resonating of the heart with happiness that's felt in another, or could be in oneself, I believe. And then equanimity is the heart that can hold everything, no matter what happens. And this is the context that metta is taught in. And it's quite important because, in a way, there are tendencies for each of these four to get a little bit imbalanced. So metta can get overly effusive. We can get overly attached to the people we're doing metta towards. We can be very invested in the results. You know, this person has to be happy. <laughs> you know, and so forth. And the other Brahmavihara even that out. I think maybe I'll talk about that in a few nights because it's quite an important principle. But it's interesting that loving kindness is taught so that it's connected with these other qualities. It's not just one's own kindness aloof from the suffering of the world, for example. It really is, needs to be connected with compassion, or it could become what? Just more self-centered, maybe, you know, or aloof. And it needs to be connected with equanimity, brings in the wisdom quality that we were seeing, is really needs to be connected with the metta. So very important. And, and these practices were very, very central. That when, when the Buddha, 
well, the way it was going to come out of my mouth was I was going to say, when the Buddha didn't have anything better to do, he did metta. So I probably could say that differently. <laughs> uh, but maybe, maybe I could say he, do, he did that as a, um, as a standard practice. Just when he was, you know, we get this from the text. When he was just walking around, he did metta. And when you read some of the texts, you get a sense that this was, some of the language in the text is it's a place for abiding. You know, that just being in these states <coughs> was a place to go, a place to be, a very good way to keep cultivating the qualities. And it's interesting that the Buddha, supposedly fully enlightened, still kept doing metta practice. So you can guess what I'm about to say now. He was, still had to do it. We can do it also. <laughs> and uh, so it's this uh, continual intention to open the heart, to check out where our hearts are as a way to see it. And it's, it's quite a beautiful practice, it can be. And it, another way of saying it that, that I like uh, comes from, uh, some of you may know this, there, was, there were a group of professional people asked children four to eight about the meaning of love. And, I went, and their answers are really also the spirit of metta. Billy, age four. When someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You just know that your name is safe in their mouth. Yeah. Doesn't that sound like metta? You know, we're, we're just uttering wishes for others. They, and those people are safe in our phrases. Karen, age seven. When you love somebody, your eyelashes go up and down, and little stars come out of you. <laughs> that feel like metta at its best. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll do the star coming out of you meditation, I think in two days. <laughs> Marianne, age four. Love is when your puppy licks you, your face even after you left him alone all day. <laughs> Maybe, let's see, maybe. Noel, age seven, love is when you tell a guy you like his shirt, then he wears it every day. <laughs> <laughs> and last one I'll read is uh, Cindy, age eight. During my piano recital, I was on a stage and I was scared. I looked at all the people watching me and saw my, my daddy waving and smiling. He was the only one doing that. I wasn't scared anymore. So I think those all have that flavor of metta, you know, that, that very simple, basic kindness. And we do this practice to, to open further to that. And it's really the, the reason that metta works From my experience, and I think this is really the reason given in probably in many spiritual traditions, is that our deeper nature is metta or love or whatever we want to call it, that there's a way that our being 
has this deep essential nature, if we want to use that language, that gets covered over by clouds. You know, it's like the sun covered over by clouds, and those clouds could be our history, our conditioning, a bad hair day, you know, all sorts of things cover over our essential nature. And, uh, and as we do metta more, we get glimpses or touches or flashes of that deeper nature. You know, and we, we also get that in maybe in the, the mindfulness, the sitting. We get a sense of basic peace or a basic um, warmth. And sometimes that feels very far away, you know. And so those moments when we touch it are quite important because they can really give us that sense of there being something deeper, you know. And even with when we struggle or when there's, there are difficulties, sometimes we can touch that even at least in the corner of our, of our being or know it some. And it can really build the faith that this is actually something deeper, that as we do the work, it gains more and more prominence, and the conditioning gets less. And the old habits and patterns that maybe don't serve us uh, get to be less. One of the texts about this quality of mind in the Buddhist tradition goes like this. Luminous are this mind and heart, brightly shining, but they are colored by the attachments that visit them. This those who do not practice do not really understand, and they don't cultivate the mind and heart. Luminous are this mind and heart, brightly shining, free of the attachments that visit them. This those who practice really understand, for them there is cultivation of the mind and heart. That luminosity, and in the text, it's sometimes called the brightly shining factor of mind and heart. You know, in, in the Pali language, the word is citta, C-I-T-T-A, which really uh, would best be translated as, as both mind and heart because it's not really one or the other. It really covers the, what we would call the more mental factors and the more emotional factors. But it's taken that there is this luminous quality that is there even in people who actually manifest bad actions. That is taken to be there in all human beings, but it does get covered over. And it's associated with metta, interestingly. It's associated with that quality of the shining heart. And it's taken to be there. And it's said that when we touch that, that, that level of our being, We shine and glow and radiate like the moon. So we practice metta, and it's not easy. There, <clears throat> there are a number of ways that we learn when we practice metta, when we practice these, this, this opening of the heart. And I want to mention a few of these ways that we learn. It's really 
another way to say how metta works or how we are transformed with this attention to the heart, with metta. And of course, there are other ways of opening the heart. You know, some of the other practices, I think the, the chanting for some can open the heart, you know, relationships can open the heart and so forth. But this metta practice is a kind of training. And it's very interesting that as far as I know, in other traditions, there, there isn't something quite like metta, which is a kind of a systematic training of the heart. I once, I, I think twice I've taught along with a friend who is a Catholic contemplative, we taught something, we taught a retreat on uh, Christian and Buddhist approaches to the heart. And um, of course there are tremendously loving people, but there's not something quite so methodical. So we sometimes get nuns or rabbis coming to, these, to our metta retreats because there's nothing quite as methodical that one would practice, you know, for hour after hour sometimes. It's interesting, you know, and I've, I've, when we have, I've, we've had nuns or rabbis come in, I always ask them, is there something quite like this? They say, not quite like it, you know. Again, doesn't mean that people who do metta are more loving than people in other traditions, but it's interesting to have an actual method that we can, we can work with. And one way that I'd like to think of metta working is that we learn to lead with our hearts. You know, many of us really were maybe trained to lead with other parts of ourselves. You know, I think I was trained and conditioned to learn to lead with my problem-solving planning capability, as I was mentioning. <laughs> you know, and I think I had a very uh, you know, naturally a very open heart, you know, a very, in fact, a very emotional nature. But, you know, being a boy and uh, a man in this culture, not encouraged. Certainly the way I was growing up, not encouraged that much. You know I, know, I knew there was a very warm heart there, you know, because when I was 14 or 15, I was taking driver ed. I cried at the driver ed movies. <laughs> Other people didn't. <laughs> they're, you know, they're really bad movies. Huh? <laughs> anyway, every, everyone's probably seen Dry Red movies, right? The, you know, the gruesome crashes. <laughs> I don't know what they, I don't know whether anyone's done an actual scientific study of whether those really work or not. But <laughs> in any case, um, I used to cry at driver ed movies and sometimes that other, you know, others, so I knew that was there, but, but uh, there was still that more of those kind of habits of mind that were more problem solving and not so easy, you know, until I, um, you know, became an adult to really to learn how to access my, my emotions well, really, you know, and then really train. I think that's probably true for many of us, some women as well. I think it's a little bit more with men. You know, we do get, um, at our metta retreats, we get 80% women. We should do some special promotion, I don't know. Or maybe give the men discounts, kind of like, like at those dances for, you know, for people doing dating or something, you know. Give, sometimes the women are given free entry, right? So we should give them. <laughs> I'm just free associating here. <laughs> 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 so 
so for me, doing metta practice has been quite wonderful. It's been a way, you know, one way among several, really to refine and open the heart. And it really can work with that. It, it's like a leading. I like to think of it as like a, the, we develop the capacity to lead with the heart. We may not always choose to lead with the heart. Sometimes we may lead with the mind, or sometimes it is appropriate to lead with problem solving or something else. But I, I think actually, when we train fully in the mind and the heart and the body, we can in a sense lead with any of those. And we really have the capability to do that. I think that's really one mark of maturation. You know, when, when they're all developed and they're all available and they become more integrated. I think for me that's one mark of um, uh, a kind of maturity of development. It's like in, uh, in many devotional practices, one learns to lead with the heart. In the singing, in the chanting, there's a kind of leading with the heart. And we can train in that. We can develop in that way. You know, some of you may remember the film on Gandhi. And Gandhi, when he was assassinated, the only word he said was Ram. Some of you may remember that, the, you know, the, one, one of the Hindu words for God because he was continually repeating that in a kind of devotional inner chant. And that's a kind of leading with the heart. Or another example that's really stayed in my mind was I heard, some of you know Julia Butterfly Hill, the person who stayed up in one of the red, endangered redwood trees in Humboldt County, I think. Was it Humboldt County? Um, north of here for two years in a tree. And she, she's quite a remarkable person. And, um, and she talks about, can every action come out of love? That's really leading with the heart, you know, and that's a whole practice. What would it be like to continually ask that and do one's best to follow through? That's the spirit of metta. It's that kind of leading with the heart. And yet it's a training. It's not very easy, you know. Sometimes the metta can feel dry, right? I'm learning, I'm trying to have this feeling of warmth, and I repeat the phrases that it's dry. And when I was first doing metta, metta was quite dry for me. You know, I did, uh, I would do metta some, and it kind of felt nice. I particularly like the metta for all beings, in which we radiate out. That's, that, I, that I connected with. But often I didn't connect so well initially with the metta. And I remember I did my first week-long retreat on metta, and I actually did it by myself. It was about 20 years ago. I did a week by myself, and I, it probably wasn't a great idea. Um, <laughs> you know, the meditative path is sown with all sorts of mistakes <laughs> that one learns from, actually. It's quite important to see that, you know. I think uh, our Trungpa Rinpoche, you know, sometimes talks about the spiritual path as being one mistake after another. <laughs> I hope, I don't know if that's encouraging or not, but, <laughs> but uh, he's being playful when he said that. So, um, so there's this, uh, for me, I, it actually was, I was doing a longer retreat, which was also kind of a self-retreat. And I was seeing teachers about every four days, but I was doing a few months uh, basically um, living in a little cottage at a retreat center in England, actually. And um, I decided I wanted to do a week metta 
but I, I, I didn't really get good guidance from, I didn't ask for guidance from the teachers. That wasn't that smart, but they probably should have thought of it too. <laughs> anyway, what? Yeah. Could, could be, could be, but uh, for me, I was just did it without even thinking anything. I just, and I did, and, I, and it actually felt dry and I was doing a week, and it didn't feel like I was you know, having effusive love coming out of me. It felt kind of dry. And I didn't have a lot of these techniques, which I've given you for staying more connected with the body and the heart and the emotions. I was more repeating the phrases, so it got a little bit cerebral at times. And so it's very helpful to have those techniques that you can connect with the body and the heart. And I was doing it continually. I said, I don't know about this metta. Maybe I'm just not a metta person. And then, you know, after about six days, one morning, I wasn't even doing the practice. It was after breakfast. And I just heard myself say to myself, I love you. <laughs> Unsolicited. <laughs> you know, and I just was, I was just waited a while. I was just very, very touched. And, and it told me something's happening, right? Something's happening with this metta, you know? And it's, it's quite sweet. Sharon Salzberg tells a very similar story. She's now kind of the guru of metta and has several books on it. But she tells something very similar, starting out with one of her first longer metta retreats, and it was kind of dry and didn't feel like anything was happening. And she had to end it prematurely because she was living at Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts. And she, uh, there was like some kind of conflict in the community and she had to come out of her retreat to help deal with it. And she was a little bit in a hurry as she was going to a meeting and she knocked over a vase and it broke. And she immediately started judging herself, you know, like totally non-metta energy. Like, you know, you klutz. And then her second thought, her second uh, statement right after it was that you're a klutz, but I really love you. And there was something else that came. So it's, it's interesting. So I guess that's just to say to have some faith that as we train in this leading with the heart, and I think it's true of all the meditation we do, it would be really nice if all of this was linear. You know, and we just kind of developed, and the more we did it, the more things developed. Mm -mm. It's you know, it's very mysterious, you know, and there are things like that. I can do metta for a week and not feel too much, and then all of a sudden, something happens. And so it's good to, good to know that, you know. I think, I think most of us, probably by three days in, we know that it's not linear, that things happen somewhat mysteriously. So we, we learn to train with the hearts. We learn to, I'm sorry, we train, learn, to, learn to lead with the hearts, we train in that. And it really can have an impact when we've developed metta in our everyday lives. We can really find that the heart is, you know, more available as something that we can just meet, like Kala Rinpoche with the fish. We can just meet what's happening more in that spirit, you know. And when I did a long metta retreat, or longer, the longest I've done, which was about five weeks. Uh, about five years ago, I was doing metta about 18 hours a day. And it was, um, it was mostly quite beautiful. You know, there were, 
few, you know, some moments of boredom, like, what am I doing saying all these phrases? But that was maybe like 3% of the time. It actually wasn't that much. And mostly it was, it was flowing. And what was really interesting to me was that I found that that repetition of the phrases and just that focus had my mind really attentive to any moment that I wasn't in metta. And what, what I particularly remember were like if, the, you know, if I'd be, you know, if I'd be here, like walking down to the dining hall and notice someone limping, and I would just say, oh, that person's limping. And it wouldn't be particularly negative or judgmental, but there wasn't metta there. I would perceive that internally as being off. And I'd instantly want to say, oh, I should do four phrases of metta for that person. Or if I actually was judgmental, I felt I had to come right back and kind of amend the situation. That was kind of my lived experience. It was very interesting. You know, I can't say that that level of attentiveness is with me you know, all the time particularly, or even most of the time. But the memory is quite powerful you know, to, to know that, that this leading with the heart can really have this impact. And I can tune in to that um, level of sensitivity uh, much more easily. A second way that we really develop in doing metta is that we learn to uh, develop more concentration of mind. As we've mentioned a few times, metta is a concentration practice. We're doing the same thing uh, all the time. We're repeating the phrases. And as we do that more, the mind settles. It actually can help develop concentration. And it actually, you know, when one does it for a while, it actually, concentration practice can be quite a re relief because like there's nothing to do, nothing to figure out. We just do the same thing all day long or all hour long. And it can be really, um, there's a kind of relaxation that occurs and even a kind of purity that can develop. We're just, we're just repeating. You know, one of my favorite phrases is from Kierkegaard. He says, purity of heart is to will one thing. It really points to another way to understand concentration, which is a kind of unification or unifying of our being. And when we do metta continually, there's a kind of unity. It's unified around this wish to be kind. That's the only thing I'm doing. And when we do it like that a lot, it can really um, collect ourselves. We can collect ourselves. We unify. We unify ourselves. When I was doing it, uh, a lot of, of the metta, I could feel that it was almost developing new neural networks. Concentration can do that. It almost develops these metta grooves, I think, in my mind. That, because uh, I could, you know, sometimes when we do meditation, it's almost like we can feel the nervous system getting shifted a little bit. It's quite interesting. Does any, anyone relate to that? It's quite, um, I think we, we think for the better, don't worry. <laughs> and that concentration can go quite deeply. It can lead to really a profound quality of peace and ease and calm. The metta actually has the potential when we do it a lot 
to go very deeply into what are called absorption states or states of jhana in which all there is is that quality of love and warmth when we do it a lot. It can really happen like that. It can be very, very unified. Very unified and, and, and very uh, focused in a way that actually some of that radiant quality starts to appear. It's quite, quite something. And yet it's also hard, you know, that's one of the interesting things about doing metta in terms of concentration is that when we do it a lot, you may have found this, sometimes we make very humorous mistakes. You know, like my phrase, you know, we, we sometimes call these metta muddles. Like when our mind is doing the same thing over again, you know, for 45 minutes or for half an hour, and I find my mind getting the phrases wrong. Or I've been, you know, is it very interesting, you know, doing metta all day long, and then having moments when I sit for the life of me, I could not remember my phrases. Very, very interesting. You know, like I've, been, I've done it like 43,000 times in the last two weeks, and at this moment, I don't know what my phrases are. <laughs> or, you know, there is, um, you know, I get them confused, like some of my phrases are, may I be happy and contented. And sometimes I, you know, occasionally I find I would say, may I be, may I be happy and cemented. <laughs> Or I, I, my, one of my phrases is, may I be safe and free from harm. May I be, may I be safe and free from form. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. <laughs> you know, we haven't really had, we could have contests for the, the best meta model. We probably could have that. And, and the other thing, last thing about concentration is that concentration can really help us to experience some of the depths of peace and some of this radiant quality, which can be very inspiring. But it's helpful to know that what ultimately frees us is the clear seeing and the wisdom, that we can have deep concentration and even be deeply, deeply loving. And it's not the same thing as being free. That's an important point. That's why the metta ultimately needs to be connected with the wisdom practices. I heard of a story from uh, Guy Armstrong, who also teaches here, of a nun who had tremendous powers of concentration. And she would, one retreat, she did seven days on almost single-pointed concentration. And then when she came out of the retreat into the monastery, she just started complaining. <laughs> so, um, may have had these wonderful qualities, but maybe some things weren't touched. So that's the thing about concentration, that, that we need to balance it with wisdom. I'm going to mention two other ways that uh, metta develops us. A third way, you know, in addition to this learning to lead with our hearts and developing further concentration, is that there can be a kind of purification that occurs in loving kindness. I was mentioning that this afternoon, that we can see how uh, there's something like purification, if, if I can use that word. And if it's not quite the right word, maybe do a translation. But I'm thinking of it in two ways. One is that we touch more and more something pure in ourselves, or something kind of more touch that, that core kindness or the radiance. We touch that more and more. We live maybe from that more and more. 
it becomes more of a resource. So it's a beautiful practice to have that expand in ourselves, you know, and it becomes a tremendous way that we can be with difficulties. You know? Metta is a beautiful antidote. Uh, you know, I use it sometimes if I ever wake up in the middle of the night with distress. So I want to let you know, even after a lot of meditation, it sometimes happens. So just human being. <laughs> and uh, I am, just do the practice of going right to metta. Particularly, you know, because it's very one can be very vulnerable at that time, and when sometimes when one's very vulnerable and there might be some <clears throat> kind of somewhat um, nasty voice speaking. Does anyone have nasty voices that sometimes speak? Okay, three three out of the group. <laughs> okay, a few late hands. Okay. Um, that a metta is a beautiful antidote, that the power of metta, kind of it's like touching a more pure energy and it can serve as an antidote that's very beautiful. So when we get metta strong, it can work like that. That's really touching the pure or touching this, you know, the, the really the simple kindness that we get, that we work with and it gets stronger. And that's a real basic reason why to practice metta. And my hope is, again, by the end of the retreat, that even if you haven't done metta before, the repetition here will have it be like a tool in your repertoire. That's my hope. That's our hope, really. And the second aspect of purification is that when we're moving towards, let's say, that purer state, it's as it were the impurities come to the surface. And again, I, I hesitate a little bit to use a word like that. By that, I simply mean that which uh, covers over that, that moon or that covers over the radiance. It could be my being judgmental or my, um, my anger sometimes or my, even my self-centeredness. You know, a lot of what we were discussing with the neutral person could be seen, as I was mentioning, as a kind of purification, just noticing what are some of my tendencies? They get, they get um, more visible as we do metta. You know, and sometimes doing a lot of metta can even take us um, deep into the psyche. You know, we find in teaching one-week metta retreats that uh, there's generally a little more turmoil in people's psyche than with mindfulness retreats. Sometimes it stirs things up. It's interesting, you know. People have stronger dreams sometimes, sometimes very intense dreams doing metta. Mindfulness too. Anyone have intense dreams? Yeah? That's very common, don't worry. If you did something bad, don't worry about it. <laughs> it's okay, it's not, it's not the true you being revealed. It's maybe more the, you know, the, uh, parts of yourself that you know, have a chance to show up. So we do that with metta. We do the metta practice over and over. And you know that, that more radiant quality shines through. We have glimpses. We have glimpses like I had that morning when I said I love you to myself. We have moments and they're quite important that, that we have them. We touch, you know, we touch what some teachers called our basic 
goodness. You know, I was thinking of, there's a, you know, there's a statement by uh, Dr. King, Dr. Martin Luther King. He says, there is within human nature an amazing potential for goodness. It's really found, that sense of things is found in many traditions. And we, when, when we do metta, I, I like to think we knock on the door. Basic goodness, show yourself. Basic kindness, show yourself. And it does more and more as we do that. So I just want to finish with one other aspect of metta, which is that movement to touch uh, our deeper nature, you know, to, to move towards that radiant quality. You know, and it really also is connected with this sense of um, not being quite so self-centered in our love for our metta. You know, we saw that with a neutral person, how sometimes it's, we find it harder to be kind outside of a certain circle. And with the metta, we more go into a sense of love or that radiant heart being more like the nature of things, more like our basic nature. So it's not something we necessarily have to just um, gather and keep it over in this corner because I don't have that much love. You know, that it's more, when, it's, when we see it more as our basic nature, there can be much more of a sense of it being available each moment for everyone. That's a direction. You know, or we can have much more of a sense of interconnection. There's a story which I love a lot in the, in the Buddhist text of a, um, of a monk named uh, Anuruddha who lived with several other monks and they did so much metta that they came to tell the Buddha when he visited, he asked them, how are you living? And he says, we are living in very good harmony, Buddha. And, and he asked why, and he says, we have done so much metta that our minds and hearts have merged. And now we actually each call ourselves by the same name, Anuruddha. <laughs> and so they were, became known as the Anarudas. And, and let me see if I, uh, um, he says, we have, Anuruddha says that from the practice of metta, we have diverse bodies, but we only have one mind and heart. We are connected. Yeah. And I think we probably know that from times we felt very connected with people, right? That there can be that sense of, of oneness that's potential there. And, and the, really the invitation of metta is to cultivate that and expand that and move towards the depths. So I think I will end with, uh, there's another quote that I have from Dr. King. Um, and you know, he really tried to bring that spirit of metta, like, like many others, to social issues, you know, which is, goes against the grain. People think with social issues, you have to have realpolitik and you know, be realistic and love is too soft and so forth. And he um, thought differently. And so this is from him on that basic resting in 
love or metta and the way that it's connected with something very deep and real. This was written near the end of his life. I say to you, I have decided to stick to love for I know that love is ultimately the only answer to human issues, to human problems. I'm not talking about emotional bosh when I talk about love. I'm talking about a strong demanding love and I have seen too much hate. I've seen too much hate on the faces of sheriffs in the South. I've seen hate on the faces of too many Klansmen and too many white citizens counselors in the South to want to hate myself because every time I see it, I know that it does something to their faces and their personalities. And I say to myself that hate is too great a burden to bear. I have decided to love. And if you are seeking the highest good, I think you can find it through love. And the beautiful thing is that we are moving against wrong when we do it. But because one who has love has the key that unlocks the door to the meaning of ultimate reality. One who has love has the key that unlocks the door to the meaning of ultimate reality. And so he's saying that when we are aligned in that way, we go against what's wrong. We go against the hatred. One who has love has the key that unlocks the door to the meaning of ultimate reality. So let's just sit for a moment now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.